exposing light on the darknet marketplace, and a lawsuit aims to reveal whether links exist between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign over election hacking. These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. The darknet marketplace is getting a bit of exposure these days as a joint U.S.-Canadian-Thai law enforcement operation has taken down one of the world's largest darknet operators, known as Alphabay. To examine the state of the darknet marketplace, I'm joined by Data Breach Today editor Matthew Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. Before we get to the Alphabay case, spend a few moments to tell us about the darknet marketplace. Darknet marketplaces refer to any website that can only be reached using the anonymizing Tor browser. This is where cybercrime has shifted in large part. Underground marketplaces have always been used by hackers, people engaging in cybercrime, hangers-on, script kiddies to trade information, as well as to buy and to sell things. With the emergence of these anonymized or pseudo-anonymizing websites, Criminals can traffic in these so-called darknet marketplaces, or the you know sometimes referred to as the dark web, buy and sell credit card numbers, details of hacks. What's the skinny leading up to the law enforcement action targeting Alphabay? So Silk Road was perhaps the most notorious marketplace that we've seen, and eventually got taken down in 2013 when the admin was identified by law enforcement and captured by the FBI in a San Francisco library. Literally, agents dived for him, left his laptop open, wasn't able to close it, and they caught him red-handed. That was meant to serve as a deterrent for future cybercrime. Unfortunately, we haven't really seen that. Some of the successors to Silk Road that have come out have included Alpha Bay. It launched in December 2014, and it's been offering everything from weapons to drugs to stolen payment card data to stolen health card data. Earlier this month, in a joint operation, Canadian police raided at least two residences and a warehouse in the Montreal area in Quebec. Also in Thailand, police arrested a Canadian citizen who'd been living there for about eight years. It looks like he was, if not an administrator, then maybe the chief of security or a major figure in Alphabay. In your reporting, you make reference to dark web access scam. What is that? One of the byproducts of creating a dark net marketplace is that whoever is running it is typically taking a percentage commission off all of the goods that get sold there. Now, when you have all these people buying and selling goods and using Bitcoins, often having to submit them through the software that controls the darknet marketplace, the administrators at any given moment are potentially sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins. What one risk is, is that the administrators might say, you know what, it's been fun allowing people to buy and sell weapons and drugs, but we're just gonna take these millions of dollars in Bitcoins and see you later. <laughs> so there have been these highly publicized police actions against a site such as Alpha Bay, but I assume that's just the tip of the network and there are a lot more out there and uh, seems like very thriving places. The law enforcement operation against Alpha Bay only came to light recently, but the users had been noting that the site was out since around July 5th. Now, their immediate concern was these exit scams, like I was telling you about. And it's fascinating. If you take to Reddit, you can see kind of a real-time commentary from people who say that they are involved in the group coming to grips with what may have happened. So initially, a lot of the higher-up people are saying, 
hang on. And after some time goes by, and then especially after these law enforcement raids come to light, people are saying, okay, now it's time to jump ship. If you were using Alphabay, there are multiple possibilities if you want to set up shop somewhere else, or if you want to buy and sell these kinds of goods somewhere else. For example, some of the big ones are called Dream Market, Handsome Market, and also one that's called Silk Road 3.1. The founder of Silk Road is serving a life sentence. Obviously, that's not him, but some other people have taken up the mantle, and it looks like we've had at least two, three, or however many iterations of the site since then. There's also a really big site called Ramp, which may be the biggest site. That's Russian language. One of the things about Alphabay was it was English language, hence it's unlikely that a lot of people would necessarily jump over to a Russian language site. And the future? Law enforcement's never going to get ahead of this problem. It's always going to be playing catch up, but that's the way crime works. They don't prevent every bank robbery. They don't prevent all credit card fraud. But if they can infiltrate these marketplaces, maybe turn an admin, thus giving someone like the FBI access to it, then they can potentially pick off quite a few higher level players, not just the lower level players that inevitably get picked up. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. We'll be back with the ISMG Security Report after this. ISMG's Global Summit Series will be taking place at the Marriott Marquis in New York on August 8th and 9th. Hear from subject matter experts like Randy Trezak of Carnegie Mellon on insider threat detection. Learn more about ransomware, endpoint detection, malware, and more. Visit events.ismg.io and register today. We're back. A lawyer with subpoena power is a dangerous thing. You file a lawsuit, so you get subpoena authority. You get discovery. That's cybersecurity author and attorney Mark Rash. Rash was speaking about a lawsuit filed last week by three individuals against Donald Trump's presidential campaign, as well as political strategist and one-time Trump advisor Roger Stone. The lawsuit contends the defendants conspired with agents of Russia and WikiLeaks over the disclosure of private information resulting from the breach by the Russians of Democratic Party computers. If a federal district judge determines the case could proceed to the discovery phase, that could require the defendants to be deposed and hand over documents potentially revealing previously unknown facts about the hack of National Democratic Committee computers by the Russians in the run-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. What's important here here is not whether the plaintiffs succeed in their lawsuit and receive damages, it's the discovery process, where the Trump campaign and Stone could be forced to turn over emails, documents, and other communications. They'd all be fair game. Ultimately, these particular plaintiffs may or may not care whether they get a check at the end. They care about finding out what happened. The plaintiffs filed the lawsuit just days after the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., released an email string that showed his willingness to meet with Russian operatives to get political dirt on Democratic Party presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. That meeting was held in June 2016 and also was attended by candidate Trump's son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner and Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. As the lawsuit describes, hacking is one component in a larger effort by the Russians to influence foreign elections, including last year's presidential ballot in the U.S. According to the lawsuit, when Russia conducts cyber attacks related to an election in another country, it also seeks out partners on the ground in that country. The plaintiffs contend that modus operandi for the Kremlin to interfere in foreign elections appears to be what occurred during the 2016 U.S. presidential election when Trump Jr. sought the meeting with the Russians. Michael Carpenter is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. He was serving in that job when the Russian hacks of the DNC occurred. Carpenter appeared late last week on The Rachel Mano Show. Here's an edited excerpt of Carpenter from his appearance on the MSNBC program. 
Russia always tries to use a multifaceted approach that relies not just on hacking from afar, but also it uses human intelligence in order to corroborate, in order to glean better information, in order to do what it seeks to do. One of the prime goals of Russia's intelligence services is to penetrate into foreign political circles. That is the holy grail of Russian foreign intelligence, to be able to get into those networks which aspire to power and then eventually come to power so that they have the influence ultimately to be able to affect policy. That is their ultimate goal. So the notion that they would target disinformation from a GRU headquarters outside of Moscow and not use assets on the ground, that's not how they do things. Interestingly, the lawsuit neither names as co-defendants with the Trump campaign the Russian government nor WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks released on its website the hacked DNC emails and documents that revealed the plaintiff's personally identifiable information. Russia likely wasn't named because as a sovereign nation, it's immune from such lawsuits. But why not WikiLeaks? The plaintiffs didn't say. But former Homeland Security policymaker Paul Rosenzweig conjectured that if the suit was intended as a real effort to mitigate a harm, the other parties would have been among the defendants. Perhaps the plaintiffs, represented by former Obama administration lawyers, have something else in mind with their lawsuit. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The debate over compelling technology companies to provide access to encrypted communications under court order is becoming more confusing. And Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull isn't helping clarify the matter. ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk provides this explanation from Sydney. Australia plans to introduce new laws by the end of the year that would compel technology companies to provide access to encrypted communications. But details of the legislation remain slim. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull says that encryption is posing major challenges to law enforcement in investigations dealing with terrorism, drug trafficking, and child exploitation. Australia has been pushing its view on how encryption is complicating law enforcement internationally, most recently at the G20 meeting in Hamburg. The details of how Australia will compel technology companies to provide access to encrypted communications remains to be seen. As in other public statements, the government ideas are ambiguous and occasionally not entirely technically accurate. When asked what a backdoor is, Turnbull says... Do you want me to tell you what a backdoor is? Yeah, well a backdoor is typically a flaw in a uh, software program that, uh, some, that it perhaps the, the, uh, you know, the developer of the software program is not aware of uh, and that somebody who knows about it can exploit. That's not quite right. What Turnbull actually described is a software vulnerability. His comment, along with others made by government officials in the past, have made the encryption debate in Australia more confusing because of imprecise or vague language. Turnbull also muddied the waters further by saying the laws of mathematics are very commendable, but the only law that applies in Australia is the law of Australia. The strength of encryption relies on the difficulty in factoring multiples of very large prime numbers, which today's computers are unable to do fast enough. A host of messaging products employ end-to-end encryption. Encryption and decryption keys are stored on end-user devices rather than a central server. In that configuration, providers simply don't have the capability to decrypt content. 
The U.S. and U.K. have expressed worries over encrypted communications. Last year, the U.K. passed the Investigatory Powers Act, under which authorities can issue a notice requiring a service provider to provide data in an intelligible form. The European Union, however, is moving in the other direction. It's considering amending a privacy directive to mandate end-to-end encryption and prohibit backdoors or mechanisms that subvert security. Australia's approach will be closely watched, but the technology industry is likely to fiercely react to legislation that would undermine the security of all users. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Finally, getting kids, especially girls, involved in cybersecurity at an early age is an off-talented approach to build the cybersecurity workforce of the future. Now, to encourage girls to become cyber savvy, the Girl Scouts of America will be offering 18 new cybersecurity badges starting this fall. Girl Scouts of all ages, from kindergarten through 12th grade, will be eligible for the badges. The Girl Scouts are teaming up with cybersecurity company Palo Alto Networks to provide cybersecurity education to millions of girls across the U.S. We'll learn about coding, data privacy, creating and working around firewalls, and how to deal with cyber bullies. Judy Cranston is CEO of the Girl Scouts of Western New York. Speaking with Buffalo TV station WIVB, Cranston says the cyber education the girls will receive now should pay off for them in the future. One study said that there was going to be 3.5 million unfilled jobs by the year 2021. So there's a great opportunity out there and it's a well-paying field. So we want our girls to be right there. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time. Music